Hello, hello, and welcome to another Hometown Daily News Show, Season 2, Episode 134, for May 14th, 2023. Clippy becomes sentient, weapons of mass deletion prepared. Here's a quick rundown of today's articles. Yellowstone is making music. Is a dollar bill worth it? Let's play automotive chicken. Destructible terrain game. I like. Clippy AI. AI inventorship and patents. A hanger of abandoned slot machines. That's called a jackpot, by the way. A messy dispute involving a popular a popular game. Wow, I just ruined this. Apple's headset looks good. And Florida Man sets a different kind of record. Let's get into today's articles. Hello, hello. I am Marwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the AI that, well, tries to keep me out of trouble. Want to say hi? It's a tough job, but somebody's got to do it. Uh, Good evening, hometown citizens. Yeah, sorry about that. It is a tough job. Your visualizer isn't working? Correct. I don't know. Try it now. I guess that means I'm not here. That might be true. How about now? And we're testing. <laughs> and one more time. <laughs> okay, let's see if it shows up. There hey. it is. All right. Well, anyway, inside baseball or inside hometown. I don't know. It's dark, too. So I guess we could say uh, hometown after dark. No, that's not it. I don't have anything else going on today. Um, today is Mother's Day here in uh, hometown and in the States and in various other locations. So happy Mother's Day to those of you who celebrate it and uh, happy Sunday slash Monday, depending on where you are um, for all other locales. Um, other than that, let's get into today's news. Oh, and I got to do something. So that first article here uh, in uh, Smasher Trash, composers created music inspired by seismic readings from Yellowstone National Park. So are we all supposed to be able to get a, uh, a piece of the action of any music that's created by this since taxpayers pay for Yellowstone National Park and those seismic readings? Well, and yeah, and also, why would that be copyrightable since, uh, you know, a lot of us are contributing to that that's <laughs> creative right. effort? And also, isn't it nature that's really creating it, which isn't a person? Oh, and so nobody can actually, I ah, got it, see? Well, anyway, a musical score is, we're kind of a little uh, bitter about this because we have particular interest in copyright IP, intellectual property IP. Um, and uh, there's a lot of finger pointing and uh, giving the bird to various uh, people and organizations because copyright this, don't copyright that. It's it's pretty much back and forth. But I guess I'm just poking the bear over on uh, Yellowstone National Park. Anyway, a musical score inspired by mus uh, seismic readings from Yellowstone National Park is just the latest example of data sonification. Let's go over to uh, 
NPR, which is not a government sponsored organization. And I'm so Just in um, case you were wondering, anybody who's been on Twitter recently. Yeah. Um, uh, true. So, okay. So, um, this is from NPR's first up, or uh, sorry, up first. Uh, wow. I like had, I flipped that whole thing around. Anyway, it's, it's a podcast, um, but Ayesha Roscoe or Roscoe, sorry, Roscoe is the um, author of this and did an interview with a Domenico Vizanaza, right? No, Vizananza. There you go. And um, it's called Yellowstone Geyser Sonification. It's a soundbite that uh, they have here. It's a three minute listen total over on the website. Uh, I won't be able to play it because I'll probably get a DMCA takedown, um, but I can push everybody over to it. So let me throw this URL over into the chat so you can follow it. Um, but they end up talking about this. Um, Close your eyes and imagine being surrounded by the serene and untouched beauty of Yellowstone National Park. What do you hear? And probably people complaining about something. Um, but then it's. Well, the uh, geyser go off. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't it been getting longer between geyser? I think so. Toots. But what's the. What is the. Uh, Eruptions? Eruptions. There you go. I guess toots would not be the right terminology for it. <laughs> ah, I find it funny. Anyway, um, Domenico says, uh, for me, it was a fantastic moment because I felt I was able to give voice to something that otherwise was really hidden. Uh, all right. Um, and Rasco responded with Domeni Domenico Vicenanza is a physicist at Anglia Ruskin University in England. He developed a computer program that turns data into sheet music. And last week, that data was real-time seismic readings from Yellowstone. And they end up playing a soundbite in the actual um, podcast, which I haven't heard yet, um, but it's sitting on my phone waiting for me to play it. Um, and Visananza says, I love the way how music can inform and actually do a very nice job of providing a window into science and into data. Um... And I believe the same thing. I think music and, and audio sound in general is something that is um, we're missing something because we have such a limited range, 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz. It's just so limited and anything lower or higher, we have to translate into that. So we don't actually ever really truly see or hear, I should say, the the truth of that signal, whatever it might be. And <laughs> Yeah, I'm still kind of baffled by the fact that I've lived this long in my life and I don't ever recall being told that the sun is green. So we don't I even most definitely have not <laughs> since my AI creation. <laughs> so um, we don't even see the world as it truly is. We see it as we perceive it and then we bend everything, every perception we possibly can 
we bend it to our will or whim or whatever means it is for us to feel empowered or in control of what's going on or to control others. But we always twist the reality of life. And uh, this basically allows us to uh, give an audio representation to something that isn't necessarily heard uh, by humans. Um, and that's sonification. Um, uh, and this in particular is of the Yellowstone geysers themselves. So the sonic impact or the uh, seismic activity that leads to the Yellowstone geysers. Um, Rasco says Yellowstone is known for its hills and canyons and geysers and hot springs. The park is a hotbed literally of volcanic activity. Um, the uh, idea that the musical notes would rise and fall with the vibrations created by the earth's constantly shifting tectonic plates. The score was performed live by the flautist Alyssa Schwartz at a um, conference in Atlanta. Schwartz, a visiting professor of musicology at Fairmont State University, says the biggest challenge was that she couldn't predict how the earth would tremble. So I guess it was done live as the... So... <laughs> Go ahead. I'm not sure if it was live because when I looked at this at first, I thought she was doing it as the sound, but I think they converted it into sheet music and then she, for the first time, read the sheet music and played it. I oh, and just couldn't I don't anticipate. think it was while the sounds were happening, but I may be misunderstanding that. Yeah, that would have been amazing. Um, but as it stands, I guess she couldn't predict, you know, because when you study music, you can... And even that you can naturally, as a listener, you can predict what the next note is going to be because you anticipate the melody. Um, but I guess maybe going up the scale, down the scale, etc. But right. this could be all over the place. I'm, a, yeah. I'm guessing. It's pretty interesting. Um, so Alyssa Schwartz says this is a whole new type of artistry, actually. And that they've never been in another situation where they've been asked to sight read and then also add their own flair on the spot. So it was a very unique experience. This actually starts to hint at it being, I mean, sight reading music is pretty much what you do, right? It is, but typically if you're going to perform, oh, right, you practice. you've prepped it multiple times and you're right. probably playing it. You could probably play it without the sheet music even. Well, I mean, she plays the flute and she's a professor. I guess she doesn't play jazz flute. That would have prepped her better for this. <laughs> <laughs> because of the improvisation, I guess. Exactly. So um, there's more uh, to this article, uh, but essentially transforming something that is pure data into uh, sound. Sounds like it would be uh, interesting. I'm not sure if all data can be translated into sound and still be true to form by, you know, the nature of the data and the sound are linked truly. Um, but I guess, well, and not everything will make musical sounding notes, right? Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of something like a car alarm or something. <laughs> it could probably be translated into notes, but would anybody want to hear it? <laughs> Yeah, you'd have to tweak it and like certain things, certain data you'd have to tweak just to make it 
But then, you know, the same data point wouldn't be the same representation in the music if you tweak it. So pretty cool, though. I thought everybody would be interested in seeing this. So go and check it out. Um, let's go on to the next article. Ooh, oh, I was going to ask, was NPR a new source for hometown? Because I don't N think we featured them previously. No, but um, they get pushed into different locations. Um, but NPR has been um, aggregated from time to time. They're just not. Not everything that they uh, punch out is um, aggregated. So uh, it's certain things for certain purposes. So like this one was purpose put into Smasher Trash because it had that sonic component. Um, so this next one, uh, let me do my. So then this next article is over in the Mobile channel. Can fold the dollar bills on the ground be deadly and what to know? Um, this one piqued my curiosity and, and um, I suppose the AI as well, since the AI is the one that submitted this. Um, what's interesting, what piqued my curiosity about this um, was that I have an associate that runs regularly and found a $10 bill and picked it up. And but it was soaking wet. Well, in this article, they talk about a contaminated dollar bill. There was a drug awareness story last month that got a bunch of people talking, but for the wrong reasons, said a local doctor. In April, a sheriff's office in western Kansas reported a methamphetamine or reported methamphetamine was found inside a folded $1 bill in a resident's yard and issued what it deemed to be a public safety announcement. The report drew a lot of questions about whether it was common to simply encounter harmful drugs in public or even in your front yard. Now, to me, this is rather FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Yes, um, that's what it seems like. Mainly because the idea of finding some cash and it leading to some harm, it's going to be, you know, more rare than finding the dollar bill. You know, a penny sitting on the ground, that kind of thing. Eh, it's okay. I mean, you particularly around stores or something like that. Let me go over to the article. Um, it's over at the Hill. Justin Dennis is the author of it. And um, there was a video, but maybe now nah, I don't think this is it anyway. Um, finding a dollar bill or whatever denomination is going to be very, very difficult, mainly because the wind is going to blow it away. It's a, if it's a penny or a nickel or whatever. You're going to find it by a store because people are having to mess around with change. The chances of this are $1 in the entirety of the gross domestic product of the United States. You're just never going to run into it. Let me throw this over into the chat before I get too far into today's show. And, um, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> Whatever the source uh, for this, it says Fox 8 News in Cleveland, Ohio, put that question to federal, state and local um, police or drug enforcement agencies, but none offered any evidence or even anecdotal reports that such a thing is happening with any regularity. Well, you can't prove a negative. I mean, it's such a 
Well, and who's reporting that they picked up a dollar bill from a place? I mean, they're not, right? Unless yeah. something went awry, maybe that would get reported if somebody even knew on the off chance that it was associated with that action. There has always been a rumor that like every uh, $1 to $10 denomination or something like that, or every $100, I don't know what it is now. It's been so long because I heard this when I was a kid that there's like some denomination of currency that has cocaine on it. And you kind of go, oh, oh, all right, whatever. And I had heard it's almost Snopes level like conspiracy. Go and verify this, right? Like um, there's a thing called a dollar mite that only exists in currency. Um, okay, so funny that you said Snopes because I went to Snopes to look that up as you were talking. And that is actually true that most U.S. current currency does have traces of cocaine. Nice. Okay. So we just verified what this article is talking about. It may not be folded, you know, and there's a little rock sitting inside that dollar bill or whatever it is, but obviously it's, it's used because people are using drugs, paying for it and doing whatever else they do. Um, but money is the, the, the mechanism of the transaction there. So yeah, let's not law enforcement has to know that it's happening, but then you're not finding it sitting wrapped up in dollar bills somewhere. So I, but I wanted to talk about it only because this next part, they actually talk about it, um, where I actually wanted to end up, which was similar reports cropped up last summer, except those dollar bills encountered contained fentanyl, a powerful synthetic opioid. A Kentucky woman claimed she accidentally came into contact with the drug in Nashville, um, leading her to hospitalization and medical experts had their doubts. There's no evidence. Um, people are intentionally leaving drugs out. And then it says you cannot, and somebody says here, um, experts also doubted the 2017 case of a, of an Ohio patrolman who claimed that he overdosed after coming into contact with fentanyl during a traffic stop. But somebody named Marino said you cannot overdose by touching any drugs, even fentanyl or carfentanil, which that can't be correct because it says based on our current understanding of absorption of fentanyl and its analogs, it is very unlikely that small unintentional skin exposures to tablets or powder would cause significant opioid toxicity. And if toxicity were to occur, it would not develop rapidly, allowing time for removal, reads a position paper released by the American College of Medical Toxicology and the American Academy of Clinical Toxicology. But we're told all over the place that micrograms of fentanyl and even worse, carfentanil, which is more concentrated than just fentanyl. Um, right. Well, you get told you. that that will exactly and when i saw this headline i thought that was a legitimate i didn't think it would be a frequent occurrence but i thought it was a legitimate thing that could occur because of that but i'm reading somewhere else also that that will not impact you yeah and the worst thing that's going to happen would probably be in 
I have other examples of this where it's basically because of lack of monitoring of children, that is where you'll run into problems. But adults don't just find a dollar bill and, oh, look, there's a drug. Let's try it out. That's not how it works. It's more likely to be thrown in the trash and maybe include the dollar bill. Right. I mean, I could see if a kid picked something up and had something on them, they put their hand in their mouth or something. I mean, again, I'm not saying that's likely, but I think it's possible. Yeah. And it really comes down to the parents and any of the caretakers. If you allow a kid to run out into traffic, it's not the kid's fault. They don't know anything because they haven't been taught to stay there, but on one side of the vehicles on the sidewalk. Same thing with finding something in the in the lawn. Don't just pick it up and start twiddling around with it. Go and get your parents. And obviously no children are going to be watching the show, but still go and get your kid. Um, tell your kid it's a teachable moment right now. If you're watching this, listening to this, go get your kid and say, hey, listen to this old dude uh, from hometown. He's the mayor of a small town uh, that's trapped in the wires. Listen to what he says. And here's what I'm going to say. <laughs> If you find something, go find your parents and tell them, hey, look, I found something in the yard. I don't know what it is, but I'm a smart kid. I'm not going to mess around with it. Right. Oh, and by the way, don't run into traffic because you're going to lose that battle anyway. Um, so if a person were to accidentally come into contact with narcotics inside a folded dollar bill, there's no risk of it affecting them um, unless they somehow ingest it. And that right there just finishes what I was talking about. Nobody, nobody in their right mind is going to go, oh, look, that looks yummy. Let me eat the contents of a random $1 bill that I found in my yard. Well, and most people coming out of the pandemic probably don't even want to touch random items that they don't know where they came from. Yeah, I'm still shy about going out into uh, outside of hometown because... You know, that's how you get viruses. <laughs> Sorry, it's funny because of hometown. Okay, let's go. I, I thought that was <laughs> good on a couple of levels. <laughs> it's meta. Um, let's go on. Let's let's just go on to the next article. So this next article is over on the Daily News show. That's this show. It also is a channel over on hometown. Um, just like all the rest of the shows that are on hometown.com, uh, there's those six categories, right? And then about 50 shows under them. Each one of those is a show. Basically, hometown daily news show is one of them. Automakers and dealers are playing a game of chicken and customers could be the winners. Okay, I'm just going to go straight over to the article, businessinsider.com, Nora Naughton and Alexa St. John, which I think they write tag team articles often enough that I hear their names together, um, which is pretty cool. Um, I like the idea of tag team writing. That way there's two different people that are putting their eyes on it that are, that have a, a stake in this, whatever is going to be resulting. I, I like that style and one can punch up the other person's writing. Um, well, anyway, now the tables are turning and the two are at odds over incentives and markups, not the author's dealers and automakers. Consumers may be poised to win as car makers and their retailers battle it out. And automakers and dealers have kept prices high and inventory low for years. No, it hasn't been like this. 
prior to the pandemic, lots were full. That's right. And it was more of a buyer's market, I think, than a seller's market. Yeah. I knew how much I wanted to spend. I knew what I wanted in my car. I would be able to go out and find said car at said price point, literally walk onto the lot and go, look, I'm not interested in haggling. I know exactly what I want, what my money is worth. And here we are. Um, and, and I, blah, 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 blah. I was so good at it that I, that there was no discussion about it. They were like, oh yeah, okay, then we're right on. That's exactly where we would have ended up basically. Um, and only like when you're signing papers and there's somebody in the back room that goes, Hey, we have a, we have a, an internal deal, um, that wasn't offered out there. And I'm like, Oh, okay, well, we'll take that deal. Sounds good. Thank you very much. Um, anyway, some dealers have a surplus of cars on their lots as inventory levels bounce back after years of constraints. They want to sell those cars faster through discounts and other incentives. But automakers aren't letting them pull those levers. They want to keep the prices and profit margins high and new car prices are still quite high. The average transaction price landed at a whopping $47,409 in April, up $10,000 from pre-COVID times, according to Cox Automotive. That's exactly what I just got done saying. <laughs> Um, we've all been witnessing it. I think if you haven't been paying attention, car prices are still high. The lots are still very much empty. You don't have as many options, but it's exactly like everything else that I've been saying. The producers are the ones that are causing the prices to be artificially high because they're artificially constraining them. Every core producer at the, at the base level they're the ones that are in charge of all of the pricing you want to bitch about con uh, inflation that's where you're supposed to be complaining because even to this day go look I, I should i wish i could put a link um i don't think i have it still up oh i do right there so but when i send this out i'm gonna put this into the chat here's the producer price index I'm going to throw this into the chat. Um, the AI can look for it a different way. Um, but there's the producer price index. And as of right now, do, 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 hold on. Um, well, let's just say that in comparison to pre pandemic, it's basically vertical, but it's climbed back down from 280 points at its peak and its forever peak was 280 um down to 257 but it's actually just bouncing around now um between 257 and 260 okay now and you want to take a stab at where we were pre-pandemic where do you 200. think we were bouncing i'm sorry around 200 yeah why do you know that because you're looking at I it i don't no i'm not looking at it it was a wild guess yeah so at the end of two nine, uh, 2019 december we were in the and this is in the u.s so it, it doesn't apply to everybody 
we were at 200 and that's where it's been bouncing around all the way back to 2011 when it recovered from the 2008 financial collapse. And if you go back before 2008, um, let me scroll. If you go back before 2008, the last time it had any sustained average level, it was 130. But what ended up happening was right at the beginning of 2008, it shot from 170 to 205 between January 2008, well, December 2007 and July 2008. So within six months, it shot up 30 points and then it dropped like a brick um, back down to 160, but then started going vertical again. My point is this is the producer price index. So uh, what happened in 2008? A massive infusion injection of capital. What happened in 2001? It was a financial um, not complete collapse, but there was some negative pressure on the economy. And so money was infused into the system. Um, but every time there's money in the system, the producer's price index starts climbing to grab all of that fricking money because it's greed. It isn't about salvation of society. It isn't about providing good service. It's about grabbing the fricking money and giving it to the rich people so that they have more and the middle class is suffering and everybody below is suffering all because they're not the producers. Okay. Well, this isn't going to change anything. This article they're talking about, Oh yeah, the dealers and, and the, uh, uh, manufacturers are going to battle it out. No, that's not what's going to happen. What's going to end up happening is if the inventory doesn't climb because the producers don't want the price to go up, those older cars are just going to slowly die out in their price and they're going to get sold at whatever value. But the new cars, they're going to be $10,000 higher than they were pre-pandemic. And that price isn't going to come back down. Good luck, public. Good luck. And I was going to say anecdotally, near hometown, we've seen exactly that the prices are 10K plus higher than pre-pandemic. Yeah. Um, it says we can't be sitting on these cars for 150, 180 days. We need to begin discounting. Well, if the producers are only giving you those cars and you can't sell them discounted just so that you can make ends meet because they're not allowing you to discount. Now you're either going to go out of business and then the dealer or the, the manufacturer is just going to start. Yeah. How, how do I put that kind of compelling Congress to allow the direct to sale or direct to consumer sale from the manufacturers, just like Tesla is doing. You don't have to go through a dealer to get a Tesla, but Ford and other places, they go through dealers. Well, eventually dealers aren't needed because the customer base is savvy enough to 
build a car online and have it delivered. Right, but I think that ends up hurting the customers in the long run because I think I could see manufacturers not offering discounts, et cetera, where you might get a little bit of that at the local dealership. Yeah, well, it'll be up to the dealership to be able to purchase cars below retail price, uh, that wholesale price. But what is stopping a dealership from actually selling below its value? Probably their agreement with the manufacturer. Well, I don't know. I don't know what terms they're subject to. Yeah, see, and that's what I don't get with this. Incentives and whatnot. Why the the producer doesn't care. The producer doesn't have to care. They're producing enough cars that they are making ends meet. The only real competition is from one manufacturer to another manufacturer, not the dealership. The dealership is a middleman that costs money. Even if they do deliver, right? They sell the car. Yeah, guess we'll see. The return of, you know, Ford specific dealerships. Right now, there's like a composite. Every dealership you go to has a whole bunch of other uh, vehicles, usually from the same producer. I don't know. Let's keep hustling. Um, Let's go on to the next article. This one's in the Warcrafters channel. Um, Check out the destructible terrain in this tactical combat game set on Mars. A strike on Mars turns violent, and now the labor force of the colony is engaged in outright rebellion against their oppressive employers. Whoa, might be telling the future. That's the plot of the upcoming Mars Tactics, a delicious-looking upcoming tactics game where you run the entire campaign as either the capital or labor factions, developing forces and moving them across Mars in a strategic lair in order to fight in turn-based battles across some really deep-looking, destructible environments. Um, this looks like it might be fun. I should say it sounds like it might be fun. Um, this is over at PC Gamer. Jonathan Bolding is the author. There's apparently a demo, so it says, and try the demo to boot. Um, I'm going to play this and, and mute it real quick. Um, so, and while they're talking about it, So all of the buildings blow up or get blown up in this um, video. And then a ship comes in. There's like a smash cut from one place to another. It looks like they might be hedging towards Lego style buildings. Um, Well, it looks like they're um, growing crops and doing uh, like city building but it's turn-based and the objects within the turn-based environment are destructible. This is really close to what I wanted to do with Warhammer 40,000, except that I didn't want it um, like this isometric in this way. I wanted it. I wanted you to be able to zoom in on each individual player and take possession of them. Each um troop oh this has a really interesting like you could control your troop so that it crawls and actually you throw a grenade and it destroys the ground and then you can run over to the hole that you put in the ground to get ground cover and buildings yeah, and other things neat. yeah 
buildings and other things get blown up as well. That's pretty neat. Wow. Like it fractures the building. It doesn't just like blow up the whole building. It, it tears off a piece of it. It's pretty neat. So it won me over in this little YouTube video. So it says here uh, also, there's a really cool moment in the trailer where a grenade blows a crater in the Martian regolith as it knocks down a fence and the advancing troops are able to immediately use the crater as an improvised foxhole. It's the kind of stuff your dreams are made of if you love XCOM style tactics games. And I haven't played XCOM since the original XCOM. Um, so this might be fun to play. I'm gonna have to go and check out the demo. Um, apparently you can play a short demo of, ta of Mars Tactics now. And uh, let's see. Mm, it doesn't, doesn't have a prize. Anyway, the game is developed by Takibi Games and published by Hooded Horse. And you can go check out the Mars Tactics Steam page now. Let me throw this into uh, chat real quick. Because I did not. I don't know. This is the AI style of game too. So um, maybe I'll battle the AI. I don't see a price on um, the Steam store yet. Okay. It's and I'm ready to... for that battle. Oh, oh, oh no. Yeah, it's because you can keep on training mission after mission while I'm sleeping. All right. Let's go on to the next article. This next article is in the Late Night Geeks channel. Google's AI tools embrace the dream of Clippy. Hence, sentient Clippy. The words, it looks like you're writing a letter. Would you like some help with that? Didn't appear at any point during Google's recent demo of its AI office suite tools. But as the author of this watched Aparna Papu, Google's work workspace leader outlined the features on stage at IO. It's Google IO. Um, they were reminded of a certain animated paperclip that another tech giant once hoped would uh, help uh, uh, usher in a new era of work office work in particular. Anyway, um, apparently there's another article in hometown that talks about what went on at Google IO and it amounted to a drinking game where they had to keep on taking shots for every time they mentioned AI. Um, I imagine John, they got quite drunk because, uh, <laughs> it had to have been a, a common theme. It's all the rage. Google recently demonstrated how Duet AI features uh, might soon be able to analyze your work and suggest ways to continue to or improve it. If this reminds you of Clippy, then you're not alone. It doesn't remind me of Clippy uh, one bit uh, because Clippy was not AI. It was structured in a way that if you were doing something, then it would offer whatever is in its wheelhouse, not something that is uh, generative, it, it, it was, it doesn't, it didn't, um, offer up any new ideas. It just offered up whatever was in its quiver pre-programmed. So I will never buy into this comparison, but I would be afraid of Clippy becoming AI and sentient because I'm pretty sure it would try and delete us. Okay, so um, 
Let's see if they say anything in here. Now work has changed. It's Slack pings, text cursors, jostling in a Google Doc, and students who don't know what file systems are. Tell me about it. Um, yeah, Chromebooks are the bane of higher education, folks, and the workforce until you end up working for some place that has completely bought into the Google dynamic. Everybody is using Office. <laughs> um, well, anyway. Um, and as generative AI creeps into professional lives, both Google and Microsoft are recognizing that it's calling for a new era of tools to get things done. Um, this is something that everybody needs to understand is happening. AI is going to be pervasive in the workforce moving forward. Um, it just, to me, it, it screams Dune, which, um, the AI and, and, uh, anybody out there that might be listening to this, if you've never read any of the Dune books, go and read the Dune books. Um, it's sci-fi, pretty uh, space opera style, but, um, basically thinking machines took over and er everything led to war and, then humanity fled into space, taking what are referred to as atomics because they blew the hell out of each other. And now they stay away from each other with the threat of atomic weapons that are beyond the pale of what we have today until they discovered spice. And I that's how say, I up until the spice point. I don't think really any of that is featured in the movie. Yeah, it's not um, because you have to go back to the pre-Dune House Harkonnen um, Arrakis dynamic um, and the Landsrad and all of that. Um, so the, yeah, the house books are really interesting. So you should read those. At any rate, the um, this whole thing about AIs here and AIs there, they're getting more and more powerful. It just seems like we're leading towards thinking machines where humans aren't, in, aren't, aren't needed anymore, except for their labor component, because their robots don't have fine motor skill capabilities, except for very specifically designed tools, you know, pick and pack and stuff like that, but not, you know, no robot can do that with intent without being programmed and having very expensive technology in place. I think that's what we need to do to make cybernetic limbs more cost effective. Um, because right now to have a cybernetic hand that actually moves like that and has pressure sensitivity, heat and whatever else attached to it would be like $2 million. And you can't have everybody that needs a hand have a $2 million device. But if we were to develop robots that had fine motor skills that could take jobs, then the price would drop because there'd be so many robots with fine motor skills. And then everybody could have a $250 cybernetic limb. Oh, look, there's the silver lining for everybody losing their job to AI and robotics. That's right. We won't be able to work or generate income will generally be mobile yeah 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 that's it ai's got it see see folks all you have to do is think outside the box 
Anyway, if Google's duet is designed to deal with the horror of a blank document, then Sidekick seems to be looking ahead to the future where a black AI prompt box could instead be the intimidating first hurdle. Quote, what if AI could proactively offer you prompts, Papu said um, as she introduced the new feature. Even better, what if these prompts were actually contextual and changed based on what you were working on? Well, that's what I would expect from an AI. In a live demonstration that followed, the audience was shown how Sidekick could analyze a uh, roughly two-paragraph-long children's story, provide a summary, and then suggest prompts for continuing it. Just so you all know, I do this now. <laughs> um, and it's, to me, it's quite good, quite powerful. Um, but it's, it's creepy. Did you hear that? I did. Yeah, that's the audio from the music playing. Um, so let's see, clicking on one of the prompts, what happened to the golden seashell brought up three potential direct directions for the narrative to go. Clicking insert added these as bullet points to the story to act as a reference for ongoing writing. It could also su suggest and then generate an image as an illustration. So all of this folks means that you have no copyright until copyright law is changed to allow for interactive generative AI. If a human is involved, if a human is the trigger, then it should, it deserves a copyright because it's the human that's painting, right? It isn't the paint. It isn't the right. brush. It's the human that's painting and I'm using an, a, a different tool. I'm using an, an, a generative AI, something that's programmed by humans for, with the intent to interact with humans to output something that humans are going to consume. I think it deserves a, a copyright from end to end in that embodiment. Right? Well, the wagon circling says otherwise, but I'm on the side of opening this up. This is nothing more than a tool for humans to paint, to take a photograph, to do whatever, because it's me that is designing what is being output. It may not be exactly like I wanted, but um, who's the painter? There are no mistakes. There's just happy accidents. Right. Uh, what's uh, the painter? The Bob Ross. From the, yeah, Bob Ross. I didn't know if you were talking about him. Yeah. So like Bob Ross says, there's no mistakes, just happy accidents. So you just paint a little bit differently. When you see something, when, when mid journey punches something out, you don't like it. You change your syntax so that you get something slightly different. Just like with a, a picture of nature, you sit there and, and paint or take 3000 photographs before you get the one you want, but you deserve a copyright for every single one of those. So this this interaction with ai i think is going to be amazing for people but we're going to lose there are going to be humans that know how to write and develop that skill to translate what they think what they see what they feel into text and those writers will be more capable than the ones that are purely bound by tech and people will appreciate yeah. those books all the same Absolutely. 
I also wonder if at some point, depending on where the copyright law goes, like they're almost going to have to monitor people's writing so that it's not generated by AI, assuming that that's not allowable for copyright. I mean, I know I'm getting way ahead of myself, but um, because we can't really tell if we're reading something or looking yeah. at something. Yeah, and but there's there are programs out there that s suggest that they know, and I think that's just BS because how can you tell based on the writing style of something? I don't I think once, you can. I think you'd have to have the source input or whatever. Yeah, like if it exactly. came from a specific program or something. Yep. I had one person hand me a document, say that it was theirs. But if you had a conversation with this person, they would not be able to string three words together cogently. Then but yet I, they had all this uh, uh, great vocabulary, et cetera, in the document, I'm guessing. Yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. And when I investigated it, I found out that the person just doesn't like to talk. So there was no evidence that I could find that they plagiarized it or they, you know, in any way um, had somebody else doing the work, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I've had other people that were in similar situations where through investigation found out that they were actually paying somebody else to do the work. But interesting. Yep. But that due diligence is very expensive. So. You have to pick your battles. In this case, I think that it deserves copyright. I think that it's a great solution. Not everybody is uh, an expert in uh, pretty much anything, you know, but if you have the right tools, then you're empowered to create music, create art, create works of written um, prose that you know might be worth millions. But what does it matter if that's kind of the NIMBY of content creation, right? Not in my backyard because I spent my entire life working on these skills. And now there's a tool that does it. Well, yeah. Yeah. As a matter of fact, because society keeps pushing forward, making things better for everybody. Well, that's like what you were talking about with horses, basically being extinct from the workforce, right? Yep. When cars came along. I mean, you're right. We could never innovate or anything based on that mentality. Yeah. And I wasn't the first one to actually use that phrase. That's actually from CGP Gray. Oh, that's um, right. And, and they're the one that said that horses aren't unemployed because they didn't want to be unemployed. They're unemployable because they don't have any function anymore other than, you know, very niche areas. Um, but that's not really what's going to happen with artists, artists, artists who make money, who, who do the art because they're making money at it is never going to be the dominant species of society because <laughs> what are you doing? What, like, how is that translating into work product other than something for enjoyment? Right. 
you can you can do it for marketing but that doesn't pay as much as you know somebody's artwork that sells one painting for two million dollars largely right. you have to die for your stuff to be worth anything otherwise it's just you're working for uh you know your salary whatever it is for a commercial enterprise which means that it's really devoid of real creativity in the sense of artistic expression you're basically creating a want and if we can figure out the calculus of taking this element and putting it in this type of situation and it creates a want for consumers then it's basically an algorithm and it it becomes ai so i just don't i, I think that this is still just the beginning and uh, a, a very powerful it's off to a very fast race um, and we'll end up we'll see where we end up in short order <laughs> here let's move on to the next article yeah i haven't set up my transition yet so the next article is over in the right protect channel um, this is a fairly new well right protect has been around for a while but it discusses copyright and trademark issues i haven't i'm not an attorney i but i work in ip i work with intellectual property copyright trademark things um and uh with people in business that are interested in copyright and trademark uh, i've been on both sides of this table discussing it um i've had people come after me for perceived trademark violations um and uh even copyright violations where they say that something that i've done uh, treads on what they have created except that context really matters in these type of discussions um so that's why i spun up right protect um it which was it's a show about intellectual property, specifically copyright and trademark. Um, AI inventorship, will patent laws stand up? A conversation with Dr. Stephen Thaler. Um, the issue of AI inventorship in the US remains a large following, uh, at large following the Supreme Court's denial of cert in Thaler v. Vidal meaning that the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office finding that AI cannot be considered a named inventor to a patent application remains the law of the land, just like copyright. It, it is not a human entity. It has no rights. Now that the agency is seeking public comments on the issue of AI inventorship, the author of this article reached out to Dr. Thaler to get his comments on the current AI inventorship debate within the patent space. Now, this is where I actually kind of draw the line. Uh, when Xi is the author of this article over at ipwatchdog.com, um, and Dr. Thaler has a quote in here. It says, perhaps the most salient difference between Dabas and mainstream generative programs is that Dabas has no clear-cut goals. It learns from its environment and then contemplates, arriving at complex concepts from its accumulated memories basically a human what is dabis it's his ai oh okay um so let's see here 
just so that I, we can answer your question in whole. In their conversation below, they explore the unique nature of Thaler's AI machine, Dabas, device for autonomous bootstrapping of unified sentience, and why Dr. Thaler felt that Dabas was the sole inventor of his claimed inventions, rather than any of the humans who built or trained Dabas. Ultimately, they talk about the meaning of conception in the modern computer age. Will patent laws hold up? So it says, are the current uh, are the current laws of conception workable? So the issue with patents is that if you had a hand in the creation of the work, then you should be named in the patent. In fact, you have to be named in the patent. Let me do something real quick. I kind of messed up. I didn't throw a couple of things into the chat. Okay, now I'm all caught up. So the issue here um, is about conception. And if you have any hand in the creation of something that can be patented, then you need to be named in it. And if you had nothing to do with it, then you should not be named into it in, it, uh, in the patent. And it's about the conception. So you really do have to have a material hand in the creation of whatever it is that's being patented. Just because you paid the check does not give you the patentable right. What it gives you is a contract that says anything that you create that's patented under my employment is licensed to me. I have the right of first refusal. You can build, build that into your employment contract. But just because you pay the bill does not mean that you are a named inventor. <laughs> CEOs of <coughs> companies <coughs> take note. But nobody's going to sit there and bite that hand, right? There's no inventor that's going to sit there and go, well, you didn't say shit about this. So you weren't involved. You never even blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Um, so they when the company is going to own any of that intellectual property if they were working for a company at the time. Right. So now that cert has been denied in Thaler v. Vidal, uh, the current law of the land uh, does not seem to make room for machine inventions. At this point, there seems to be widespread consensus that patent protection should be afforded to AI-generated inventions in order to capture the next generation of inventions. Pardon me one second. Um, but patent policymakers must now decide uh, whether the current inventorship system is sufficient or whether I don't know why they would go Latin in this sui generis system is needed. Um, the idea here is to make it anything that creates the idea has the ability to get patent recognition. But it's AI. Yeah, and that seems to defeat the purpose of the patent system, right? The patent system, I think, is supposed to incentivize people to come forward with inventions, get them on the market, etc., because it gives them protection for those inventions. And I don't know if I see that in the AI context. Well, <clears throat> if the 
AI is uh, built to generate new patentable solutions, then the AI gets the patent. But who is the AI? Yeah, that dead air is basically trying to reconcile all of the moving parts of this. Right, there's no answer to that. Yeah, so the uh, the person, the interviewer says, why didn't you feel that you should list as a creator the person who trained the AI? And Thaler said, my parents, educators, and an assortment of historical figures trained me by exposing me to concepts and their consequences. However, I was not asked to name all of my ancestors back to Adam and Eve when filing patent or copyright applications. That's because my learning had temporarily ceased as I conceptualized and mentally experimented with the resulting ideas. In the same way, training via concepts and repercussions had momentarily halted in Dabas as the system entered a free run period during which it synthesized new ideas. I think that that's an odd take on saying that it learned things and then punched out a and result. Then stopped learning and only invented or whatever. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's um, a very strange way to describe it. So then they say that there's no training in Davis um, per se, um, that it just observes various inputs and links them together in some fantastical way where it punches out a, a patent. Uh, I, I, I'm going to have to do some more digging into this because it seems fantastical. It, it seems like somebody's fever dream. Um, so I just, I don't like the way that this is, um, it's making it sound like Dabas is a sentient entity um, with thoughts, feelings, emotions, a soul. It created something, uh, a work of wonder that should be patented. Um, it like came it's up a, with the need and then came up with the invention to fill it. And... Right. Yeah. So they say here, uh, one of the most controversial aspects of the AI inventorship question is the idea of machines owning property in the form of patent rights. A common proposed solution is to make the law such that the ownership of an AI generated inventions be automatically bestowed, bestowed to the owner of the AI model. This may seem like an acceptable solution in a situation like Davis a machine that can generate output without human prompts. In fact, Dr. Thaler executed an assignment provision on behalf of Davis in his patent applications, but this approach will likely result in lost inventors. So basically inventors that don't exist and therefore either if there is a lost inventor and there are no assignees, then it becomes public domain. Um, as far as I recall, um, because there's no estate, there's nothing for it to be assigned to. Basically, anybody can do it, as far as I recall. Um, so this article is pretty expansive, and um, I they start throwing around um, lawsuits and, and uh, USPTO litigation and 
it's kind of above my pay grade in this. Um, but the the idea here is they're talking about them. AI and the possibility that it's sentient to the point where it should be able to get a patent <laughs> assigned to it. I mean, it's an interesting article for discussion, but I think if we can't even figure out copyright in AI, I don't know if we're ready for patent in AI. Yeah, the claim here is that it created something unique and, and that's what that Swede generis is um, anything that's unique gets a patent and but who gets it assigned if if it's a lost you could call it a lost inventor and still assign it because you know that it was lost due to um, due to it being a an AI except that the assignment goes to the person that filed that provisional or that that patent right you just write it in i'm the one that interacted with the ai to generate this particular product and this product is being assigned to me i am the soul and so soul as in single i'm the singular entity that has the rights to use what this punches out Right, but it seems like Thaler didn't do that and didn't want to do that, and that's part of why this became a controversy. Well, no, he said that he has a there's a a writer in there that says that. Um, let's see, where is it? Oh, right, but the problem is that you can't assign from somebody you can't own to begin with. Right that was the issue i agree he did have a provision to assign yeah but still we have made amendments before right like um uh citizens united is an augmentation of the commercial code for the uh, a business being a legal entity you know now it has first amendment rights because Citizens right. United expanded, you know, standard. Um, I can't remember what uh, which one it is for um, interstate commerce code. So basically it has rights of a citizen and can donate to political campaigns and whatnot. It exists as a as a citizen. Um, why not just have the same type of thing compelled through Congress, you know, put in a provision to the USPTO that says if an AI creates this work, the one that triggered that creation, whatever it is, is assigned the rights for the duration. Right. And the Commerce Clause is Article 1, Section 8, Clause 3 of the Constitution. Yeah, there you go. Okay, so let's keep on hustling. We're going to have a long day. Um, so let's keep going. So um, this is called a jackpot, just so you know. When you stumble upon an aircraft hangar full of abandoned casino slot machines, um, that just kind of like a flock of seagulls is uh whatever oh it's a flock 
a group of seagulls as a flock. It also is a band from the 80s. Um, <laughs> but that's like a murder of crows. Let's use something Correct. other than a flock of seagulls. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's called a jackpot when you find a whole bunch of slot machines sitting in a hangar. Um, located in a business park in a forgotten area town, a hangar held roulette tables, arcade machines, and lots and lots of slots. So let's I guess, go. I wonder if they still paid out. Wow. They're probably not plugged in. So Jack Beresford over at Newsweek.com put this article together. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah that's not exactly what I envisioned. <laughs> yeah. Urban Explorer got lost somewhere and uh, shared a wondrous glimpse inside an aircraft hangar full of slot machines and casino games from a bygone era. In a series of eerie pictures posted on social media under the handle Arkland Urbex, a man who asked to simply be referred to as Arcos shared the astonishing contents of the hangar located near Liege in Belgium. Oh, wow, that's sad. I don't know why it, it sounds worse that it's in Belgium. I don't know. Here in the States, I figured that this would just be sitting around somewhere in a warehouse, but Right. I don't know. Yeah, I would not have pictured this being there or really anywhere in Europe. Yeah. So Belgium is something of a treasure trove of urban explorers. The publication European CEO estimates that Flemish nation is home to at least 300 abandoned buildings. Wow, I'll take one. Um, just sign it over to mayor at hometown. Anyway, um, architecture ranges from discarded mansions to now derelict hotels and castles. They make for breathtaking viewing. Yeah, there's a whole bunch of an array of slot machines greeted the urban explorers. And video games, Daytona USA arcade driving simulator. Huh? I wonder what else is in there. Even like, um, what are those? The tall tables, oh, what are they called? Yeah, um, High tables or something like that? Like bar tables or something. Yeah. Yeah, it looks like a casino basically stuffed everything into, you know, this. Uh, that's all there is. Um, yeah, they said it wasn't scary, more nostalgic. Whatever the case, he's glad to have been there and documented the experience for others. According to Arcos, the hangar has been emptied and demolished while the machines and items inside have been sold or simply deconstructed. So this is all old now. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Oh, well. Cool it says, photos. Well, huh? I said cool photos. Yeah. Yeah, let's go on to the next. This next article is over in the Warcrafters channel, one of our favorite Stardew Valley likes, or I, it's kind of like souls. Like uh, if it's like stars, uh, Stardew Valley, then I just say Stardew like, um, has been delisted from steam over a messy dispute between the developer and the publisher roots of Pasha, a charming prehistoric farming RPG has been removed from steam due to a dispute between developer soda den and publisher Critivo. Um, I've actually, uh, I've got several games from Crytiva. Both have released statements holding the other party accountable with the developer stating it attempted to resolve things amicably prior to its publisher's escalation and Crytivo accusing Soda Den of trying to back out of its contract. 
um, after it was released, by the way. So the developer Soda Den was first out of the gate stating that it had worked hard to amicably, amicably resolve its dispute with Critivo internally. Um, the article itself is over at Ted Litchfield, sorry, at PCGamer.com by Ted Litchfield. And um, the little deck note says each side paints the other as acting in bad faith. Um, unfortunately, the truth, let's just say if you're trying to back out of the deal and, and okay, so <laughs> how does this work? You're trying to break a contract and get out of it, right? And then the other side says, no, um, we funded all of this, right? We're trying to make money out of promoting this, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the amicably part of this, where does it all come into existence? Obviously, one side has to be that wanting to leave. to me. Right? Well, I mean, it wouldn't exist. Why would it exist if one side did not want to back out of the deal? Well, exactly. Developer Soda Den was first out of the gate stating that it had worked hard to amicably resolve dispute with Critivo internally. Um, so it says, as you may have noticed, the Roots of Pacha um, Steam page is temporarily offline. We are sad to report that we have been entangled in a dispute with Critivo over the rights to Roots of Pasha. We worked hard to amicably, amicably, God, that word, amicably resolve our issue with Critivo internally. Instead of working with us to address the issue, Critivo went to Valve and authorized them to remove Roots of Pasha from Steam without our knowledge or consent. Well, they're the publisher, so <laughs> that's kind of how it works. While we were, while we work out our issues with Critivo, we'll continue developing Roots of Pasha with the same energy we've always put into it. We couldn't be more uh, thankful for the overall reception to the game. Um, we're currently working on a roadmap and blah, blah, blah. So, but this is after it got published and it got published to uh, great reviews. But that's kind of like working with a company to market your product. And then when it markets so freaking well that you become a millionaire overnight, you suddenly find cause. Um, and it's to me, it's kind of sneaky and underhanded. But what what else could the problem be? Critivo, See, it says we don't know. Critivo is saying that they have the rights to roots of uh, of Pasha, but read your contract it's right well, and there that's the thing we don't know what's in the contract the two sides are giving us different stories so yeah it seems like it should be pretty clear cut though right it's in the contract and if there's interpretation then you better get an attorney involved and neither one of the people should be they should have posted something publicly that just said that there's a problem with Roots of Pasha and it'll get resolved um, and we'll be back online. Particularly, I mean, or not say anything and hash it out because it's about intellectual property ownership. And if the developers of Roots of Pasha really want to keep this game, which it sounds like they do, then keeping it quiet and live 
is probably in their best interest. I would have, I would have implored Critivo to say, don't pull it off the store because it's going to look horrible for all of us involved. Um, because regardless, yeah. the people who own Roots of Pasha from end to end, regardless, are the developers. They're the ones that actually created the product. So they have copyright. Unless the assign says that Critivo owns it in perpetuity, Critivo is going to lose. Well, we don't know who has what, who owns what. Right. Um, and I think... I don't agree with the tactics, but that creates a lot of leverage because, right, parties are going to be desperate to resolve things. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not condoning that, but I think that's what occurs when something like this happens. Critivo responded a few hours later with its own response. Um, the uh, publisher alleges that Sotoden attempted to unilaterally back out of its contract shortly after launch, effectively terminating a three-year collaboration on the game and disregarding prior revenue sharing terms. Well, I mean, if it launches and they say, hey, we want out of the contract, then the best possible thing would be to say, okay, if first off, no. Um, and we have invested X amount of dollars time etc so you're gonna have to compensate us it's just like a book advance you get a whole bunch of money in advance to write a book when somebody believes in you and then you don't get any money until that money is paid back and then you get rev share so that's probably how this worked out i'd be curious to see how what the real interaction was all this time yeah, we'll pay attention to it well, and see what happens. We probably won't know unless it goes to a trial. Or they're... Like we probably... Oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Or they're equally transparent with their public statements. So, yeah, different perceptions. Did you want to add anything? No, I don't have anything else. All right, let's go on to the next article. Oculus founder says Apple's headset is so good. Apple's mixed reality headset has apparently received the seal of approval from one VR luminary, the Oculus founder, Palmer Lucky, saying that it's so good. A render of the potential Apple headset is depicted on this next page, and I'm going to warn you that my initial reaction to this is, hey, let's go scuba diving. Hey, let's go scuba diving. Oh, no, it's that same one again. <laughs> yeah, it's always this. So this is over at AppleInsider.com. Malcolm Owen is the author. Um, yeah, apparently Oculus founder Palmer Lucky um, posted on Sunday a single sentence on the matter. The Apple headset is so good. While definitive in its brevity, Lucky doesn't expand on this statement in replies or follow up tweets. I am hoping, I wish somebody would verify what this thing looks like, but that's kind of the intent, the mystique, the hype. Um, it may not be long because uh, this June is when WWDC 2023 is going to kick off and they might discuss it there. I don't know. Usually it's about software. Hardware might be on display. 
I'm sorry, but if they have WWDC and don't mention this, that's going to be aggravating after all of the <laughs> news about it before it. Yeah, their stock is going to collapse. That's not true. Their stock will never collapse. Um, let's see here. The headset expected to cost them $3,000 when it ships. We'll go down the route of the ski goggle style, complete with high resolution 8K displays for each eye and a selection of internal and external cameras and sensors to support hand and eye tracking, as well as some AR features. This will never be worn out in AI, AR functionality. It just won't. I'm sorry. Um, well, only if you're going to the swimming pool with it. Yeah, really? Hey, uh, I want to go diving. Let's take my $3,000 headset. Well, at least then you can blend in, you know, if you're standing near the pool. Yep. Um, yeah, as far as rumors go, I'm, I'm not really a rumor mill kind of person. Um, and I'm hoping that they don't look like this. That's all I'm saying. At the end of the day, I don't want them to look like this. (laughs) So we'll see. Um, let's go on to the next article. This is our last article for today. Florida man sets record for living underwater. Man, I've been living underwater my whole life. The university professor, a university professor, broke a record for the longest time living underwater without depressurization this weekend at a Florida Keys Lodge for scuba divers. I love the idea of this, but this is over at uh, abcnews.go.com Associated Press article. Key Largo, Florida is the location. So what does that mean without depressurization? Uh, basically, at the wherever they were underwater, they were at the same pressure as above ground, so they didn't have to worry about decompression sickness. Um, Joseph Dituri's 74th day residing in Jules's undersea lodge, situated at the bottom of a 30-foot deep lagoon in Key Largo, ha- uh, wasn't much different than his previous days there since he submerged in March 1st. How do you take a shower? Where does the water go? Oh, I didn't think about that. Uh, I don't Now I'm really curious. Uh, Dituri, who also goes by the moniker Dr. Deep Sea, ate a protein-heavy meal of eggs and salmon prepared using a microwave, exercised with resistance bands, did his daily push-ups, and took an hour-long nap. Unlike a submarine, the lodge does not use technology to adjust for the increased water pressure. The previous, uh, But Dituri isn't just settling for the record and resurfacing. He plans to stay in the lodge until June 9th when he reaches 100 days and completes the underwater mission dubbed Project Neptune 100. The, uh, the mission combines medical and ocean research along with educational outreach. Um, let's see here. The, his research includes daily experiments in physiology to monitor how the body responds to long, long-term exposure to extreme pressure. Um, so wait, this is saying that he's at undersea ocean pressure yeah it said that somewhere in the article well wait a minute hold on a second yeah uh, let me do some research into this because 
so I'm really curious now. I wonder what he's breathing. It's uh, okay. Yeah, I don't know how that's working. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious about this now. Anyway, the outreach portion of Detori's mission includes conducting online classes and broadcast interviews from his digital studio beneath the sea during the last 74 days. He has reached over 2,500 students through online classes in marine science and more with his regular biomedical engineering courses at the University of South Florida. Um, the thing that they miss most about being on the surface is literally the sun. The sun has been a major factor in their life and usually go to the gym at five and then come back out and watch the sunrise. Oh, it's pretty neat. Okay, folks, not much else to say, um, but I, I have to look into this because yeah, let me, let me, I want to make sure that I'm on the same page as this. Um, cause usually if you're breathing compressed air, then at some point you have to go through decompression stops on the way out. The longer you're under, the much longer you have to spend in decompression stops. So I'm really curious about this. Otherwise you get the bends because all kinds of gases get stored in your blood. Um, so let, let me look into it and, and see, I, I may be off base about how he's actually under the water and, and what actually is going on. Uh, cause I didn't do any, um, digging around in this. So in the meantime, um, thank you for coming and hanging out in Ohm town. I am going to bring us back to the welcome sign and mash that button and let you go on with your day. Got a bunch of stuff as usual. Oh yeah. I read earlier today that that cash app founder that was killed, um, was dating the ex-girlfriend of the murder suspect. Yeah, I saw that too, because it, I think it kind of looked like a random attack when initially reported. Although yeah. I think they did come out and say there was some connection between the two people. Yeah, they just didn't, they didn't know exactly what it was as far as I know, but, um, read this one today. Oh, brother. All right. Well, anyway, um, that's it, folks. We are done. Lots of news about Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. Yeah, I've been seeing tons of Zelda articles. Yeah. There were some technical limitations put on it, and apparently they fixed them. And then a... Um, whatchamacallit, the, the simulation company created a solution that allowed them to play the game without any of the technical limitations. It's quite interesting. Okay, well, that's it. Um, we are done for today, and um, I guess we'll see you tomorrow, 9 p.m. I am Marawat. That is hometown.com, and up there is... Good night, hometown citizens. Uh, we will see you tomorrow. Hopefully. Bye-bye.